Today's Bible reading is taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 to 27. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go into my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the, strong defenders, the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the fight, to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tebez? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. 
the sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. Becca, thank you. Let's pray one more time. Our Father, we want to express again that we need your spirit to uh, open our eyes so we'd see the truth of your word and live for you. Please, would we meet you this morning as you speak? Amen. Now, I wonder if you think you have it in you to murder a man. I mean, that's quite an outlandish thing, is it? To murder in cold blood. Not just self-defense, but to calculatingly plot the murder. Do you think you've got that in you? Or perhaps a little less outlandish. Do you have it in you to have an affair? Or premarital sex, depends on what stage of life you're at. Perhaps a little less outrageous. And let me just suggest to you that if your answer to that would be, no, never, murder, I mean, you must be joking, there's no way I could do such a thing. If that's your instinctive response, you're a little naive, according to the Bible. Because here in 2 Samuel 11, you have one of the greatest of God's servants recorded for us, having an affair and then calculatingly ordering the murder of a friend. It's a very miserable little chapter. So if you think and no, I could never do anything like this. I, you know, I'm just, I've just not been brought up that way. The circle, I would never do such a thing. You have actually a, a, quite a poor understanding of your own heart, according to the scriptures. You have a naive view of your own capacity to sin. And one of the reasons that 2 Samuel 11 is here is just to wake us up a little bit. Uh, not to be naive about what can happen. It's a cheerful morning this morning, as you uh, may have gathered, um, but not to worry. Uh, what we've been saying, we, last week then we started uh, looking back in the 2 Samuel. We said, uh, one, the 1 and 2 Samuel, they're one book essentially, one scroll cut in two. Um, they just didn't have them long enough in those days. So you, 1 Samuel 15 to 2 Samuel 8 is the triumph of David. He's magnificent, really, in those chapters. Everything he does goes right. He defeats the giant Goliath. He He's on the run, but everything he touches, not literally, but uh, goes well, it turns to gold. He is morally very impressive. A couple of occasions, he could have killed Saul, his great enemy, who's out to kill him. He doesn't, he waits. When his enemy dies, he cries. He's magnificent general on the battlefield. He's a benevolent king, we saw last time. The sort of pinnacle in one sense, as the writer describes it, of, of David's reign as king. His benevolent kindness, at great cost, at great risk to himself. He is generous to people who don't deserve it. Magnificently kind. And we go from the heights of 2 Samuel chapter 10 to this. And we're meant to be Shocked. The problem is David and Bathsheba. It's one of you know it's one of those well-known sort of 
Bible stories, isn't it? I mean, there's a Hollywood film, David and Bathsheba. I mean, a little steamy, a little violent. I mean, it's a sort of standard Hollywood fair in many ways. We know this story well. But if you come to it having seen David so far, this is shocking that he could do such a thing. And yet, and yet biblically, we shouldn't be surprised because this capacity to dramatically fall, it's not beyond any of us. I don't know how many saw, how many of you um, watched the Queen's speech on Christmas Day. If that's still part of your uh, festivities uh, year in year out, uh, we were sort of unwrap. Um, I was constructing a toy for a child at the time, but I was somewhat awoken from my um, Lego reverie by um, uh, the, the Queen's speech, which, uh, as she gets older, she seems to become more explicit about her own Christian faith year on year. There was one little paragraph in the middle when uh, Queen Elizabeth made this comment, although we are capable of great acts of kindness, I was going to do a voice, but I thought that would be irreverent. (laughs) Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. At Christmas, God sent a unique, sorry, God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. Now there's a woman who understands the Bible, or certainly this chapter of the Bible. We are capable of enormous acts of kindness, 2 Samuel 10, and yet we need saving from our own recklessness and greed, 2 Samuel 11. And how do we We need a saviour. God sent a saviour, not an advisor, not a teacher, not a philosopher, not a general, a saviour, Jesus Christ. So in a, in a summary, really 2 Samuel 11 is here To say, don't be overconfident of your own resistance to sin. Don't be overconfident in your own morality. But trust in the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's work through it. I've broken it down. They're slightly overlapping. But uh, we'll look at David's sin and we'll see the shock of sin, the progression of sin in this account, and then uh, finally the triumph of sin. So first then, uh, verses 1 to 5, the shock of sin, chapter 11. Now it is a shock, as I said, I've already stated that point. It's a shock that you get to this point in the story of uh, the, the books of Samuel and David would do such a thing. But the text gives us some hints as to how this happens. So um, David has been, until this point, presented as the great warrior. He defeats giants, literally. And wherever he goes, he has victory. Uh, just back in chapter 8, verse 14, the sort of summary statement you get at the end of that section, the triumph of David, we're told, 8.14, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Wherever he goes, he wins. He's the sort of general you want commanding your army. Even in chapter 10, uh, verses 17 and 18, just before our account today, he's been in action. Uh, chapter 10, verse 17, David was told of this battle. He gathered all Israel. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David forward against him, but they fled before Israel. David killed 700 of their charioteers, 40,000 of their foot soldiers, and so on. When David goes to battle, Israel wins. He's the great general. He's not obliged to do it, but when he goes to war, he wins. Now, this account of David and Bathsheba, and the, next week we'll see the aftermath um, when Nathan the prophet tells him, uh, tells David, look, you need to repent for what you've done. This story, this one story, it's embedded in 
really the whole of chapter 10 to 12, are, uh, what's going on is it's a war against the Ammonites. It's a year in Israel's history when there's war going on. Now, the war is mentioned quite briefly. It's there in chapter 10. It begins in chapter 10, verse 7. And at the end of chapter 12, we go back to the war. If you were in Jerusalem at this time, Jerusalem news every night would have been a war progress, war update, what's going on in the war against the Ammonites. This is a big war that runs for a year in the life of the people. David is the great warrior. When David fights, they win. There's a war which lasts for a year. What is David doing? Well, chapter 11, verse 1, David sends Joab, uh, his uh, lieutenant, out. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, he's not legally obliged as the king to go and fight, but that's what David does. He is the warrior. That's his forte. That's what he's good at. He's a man built for war. He's probably just short of 50 at this um uh, at this age and stage, almost reaching his peak, um, another 10 or 15 years, maybe. But anyway, he's, he's a man just short of his 50 years at this stage. He should be at war. That's what he does. That's what he's good at. But what's he doing? Verse, two, uh, verse 1, he remains in Jerusalem. Literally in the Hebrew, he sat in Jerusalem. He's kicking his heels, sitting around. And that's when things really take off. That's the backdrop. And so verse 2, one evening, David gets up from his bed and walked around on the roof. Now, I don't know about you, that would take me about 12 seconds, I think, to walk around my roof. But obviously he's got a palace, so it takes a little bit of time. He sees a woman who's very beautiful, bathing. Not unusual, because you may, in, often in those days, you'd have had your ablutions on the roof, um, the flat roofs of the houses at the time. So not unusual. He sees a woman who's beautiful. Makes a few inquiries, verse 3. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittites? Now, whatever was going on his, in his head, that really should have stopped it right there. The wife of... She's married, David. Oh, and she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, we're told elsewhere at the end of 2 Samuel, chapter 23... Uriah was one of David's mighty men. One of those who had been loyal to him, who repeatedly put themselves on the line, their life on the line. He's, Uriah is one of his elite guards, his bodyguards, essentially. David would have known Uriah personally, would have seen Uriah put his life on the line for David. Who's this very attractive woman? She's the wife of one of your good friends and loyal subjects. You know Uriah. He took an arrow for you the other day. and Yeah, okay. Right. And what happens? Well, verse 4, he takes her. David sent messengers to her. She came to him. He slept with her. That's it. No romance, no dialogue. Just lust and act. That's all that's recorded. It's the deed that we're concerned about in this uh, narrative. A couple of months later or something like that, Bathsheba utters the only words of the whole account. Verse 5, I'm pregnant. And if there's any, just to make sure there's no doubt, we've been told in verse 4, before she came to David, she just got over her uncleanness. She just had a period before she went to David. It's David's child that the, the narrative is pointing out to us. There's no doubt about that. Now, this story of David and Bathsheba, it is a miserable one. There's adultery and there's murder. But let me just say again, what makes this much worse is 
It's David doing this. David. Even if if you'd never read anything about the Old Testament, if you'd only ever read the New Testament in the Bible, you'd know that David is a great one. There's lots of references to David being one of the great ones. Jesus is the son of David. It couldn't get a, a higher accolade than that. David had been declared in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel a man after God's own heart. No one else gets that accolade. God looks down on David and says, that's a man like me. David is the sweet psalmist of Israel, composes more of the psalms than any other individuals, many of those that we love most. He clearly had an intimate walk with God that most of us would lack. David did this. In many ways in the Bible, David is given to us as the clearest Old Testament picture of what Jesus Christ will be like. He's in many ways a model ahead of time. David David does this. David falls. Three little things before we move on. Uh, What we're meant to notice is this one. Anyone is capable of this. If David can commit murder off the back of adultery, you and I can do it. Anyone is capable of this. Second thing, I think the text would say, be wary of breaks in routine. David stopped doing what he always does, war. And he sat in Jerusalem and was bored. And he sought out other activities. And that's just very human. When there's a break in our routine, just watch out for those times. Just don't be naive on that. When there's a period of unemployment... Uh, When you're out of town on business, when you're separated from the family for some reason, when there's a a move to a new location, a new city, just be careful because all of a sudden you're not doing normal activities and you get bored and can look elsewhere. For David, that was lust. Let's be honest, for men that's, that's not uncommon. When men sort of get a bit bored and routines are broken... Well, statistically, many, many would well, certainly turn to pornography. I mean, statistically, there'll be blokes here who are nigh on addicted to that. They'd be naive about these breaks. And more of that when we get to the um, David's children, Ammon and Tamar, when it gets much worse. But be, be wary of breaks in routine. Third little thing, don't just neglect... The basic Christian practices, which is clearly related to the second. What's gone on at this? Why? How can David do such a thing? He's not gone to war, okay, but he's not sat on his roof composing a few new psalms. I'll tell you what, I've got a bit of time on my hand. I haven't knocked out a good psalm for a few few months. Why don't I sit down, get my lyre, and compose one or two new things? He's not relating to God rightly here. Very strikingly, again, when we get to this next week... Psalm 51 is David's account of what took place here when finally he comes to his senses. And as we read when we confessed it ourselves, against you, you only have I sinned, Lord. Which is an extraordinary verse. But what David is confessing is his mistake, the thing that opened the door to him committing such grievous crimes, he'd neglected his God. He'd ignored the Lord. 
So don't neglect basic Christian practices. I read this quote, um, wasn't commenting on this passage, but it struck me uh, in the week from uh, J.C. Ryle, 18th century bishop of, sorry, 19th century bishop of Liverpool. He puts it this way, would you like to possess more faith? Well, then take heed that you're diligent in the use of every means of grace, diligent in your private communion with God, diligent in your daily watchfulness over time, temper, and tongue, diligent in your private Bible reading, diligent in your own private prayers. It is vain to expect spiritual prosperity when we are careless about these things. Oh, let those who will call it excessively precise and legal to be particular about these things. I only reply that there never was an eminent saint who neglected them. What he's really saying there is, growth in the Christian life is not rocket science. Just the basic Christian practices of spending time with God, repenting of your sin, meeting with him, praying with him, they'll keep you on the road. Don't neglect them like David clearly did. There's the shock, the shock of sin. Uh, let's move on. Let's see it, uh, the spiral down. Second thing then, verses 6 to 15. Secondly, you see the, the progression of sin. Bathsheba's pregnant, and so verse 6, David comes up with this eccentric plan to cover up his sin. I don't think he's being kind and just doing this to protect Bathsheba's reputation. I don't know if you noticed, but her name falls away from the text at this point. She's only actually named right in verse 3. From this point on, she's just either the woman or Uriah's wife. So it's not really about her. David, I think, is just covering up his own sin or trying to. So he produces this plan. He'll get Uriah back from the war front. Make him, you know, off you go, sleep with your wife, and then obviously this is Uriah's child. So David has these two encounters uh, with uh, Uriah. The first in verse 7, he starts off disingenuously. Hi, Uriah. Yeah, nice to see you. Great. How's Joab? You're good. How are the soldiers? How's morale? Good. How's the war going? Yeah, okay, good. Then verse 8. Why don't you uh, go down to your house and wash your feet? Now, you might think that's a slightly odd thing to suggest when a man's come back from war. But um, in Hebrew, that's, uh, that's sexual innuendo. You know, he's saying, you're right, why don't you go and uh, wash your feet with your wife? All right. He's suggesting, I mean, it doesn't really work for us, does it, as an innuendo? I mean, those of you who are married might like to suggest it. My darling, would you like to wash feet this evening? Um, but uh, that, that's the sense uh, in which that's what is meant uh, here. Why don't you go and... Uh, Wash your feet, Uriah. Now that is surprising. Because biblically, according to the law, back in Deuteronomy 23, you don't do that. If you're a soldier at war, you don't sleep with your wife. You dedicate yourself to the war. So David is suggesting something which is, well, contrary to what God has stated. It's odd. But Uriah is just too godly. So verse 9, uh, Uriah is a godly guy. He does what the law says. He slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and didn't go down to his house. Now, again, that is pretty surprising. You know, Uriah is a mighty man. He's a soldier. He's not a philosopher. He's not a poet. He's a soldier. He's a rugged soldier. This is Russell Crowe in Gladiator. He's been off at war. He's got a lot of testosterone going. The general says, go and sleep with your wife. His wife is stunning. We've been told that already. But no, he just says, no, I'm going to sleep here. I'm going to sleep here. He's just too godly to break the law. 
And so David has to have another go. You get the second encounter, verse 10. David's told Uriah didn't go home. So he meets up with Uriah. Look, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Verse 11, Uriah's only speech. Best thing in the passage. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master Job and my lord's man are camped in open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Look, I care about the Lord. The Lord's ark, the representation of God, his throne, is in a tent. The general I serve, Joab, is in a tent. The nation is out, you know, my, my, my soldiers who I serve with, they're vulnerable. How could I do, how when the whole nation is at war could I just go home and lounge around and lie with my wife in bed? How could I sleep with Bathsheba when all this is going on? How is that not an arrow into David's heart? Because that's precisely what David has done. Yes, God's te- God, the ark is out in the camp, the field, the soldiers. David's lounging around and he sleeps with Bathsheba. Joab says, that will be an awful thing to do. And King David, I swear on your life I would never do such a thing. Meanwhile, King David is doing precisely such a thing. How does that not just wake David up? But no, his heart is becoming harder. It's becoming easier for him to ignore his conscience. Sin is making progress within him. David has another go getting Uriah to sleep with his wife. And so verse 13, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He didn't go home. There's one thing I read this week, put it very well. Uriah drunk is more godly than David sober which is a miserable state of affairs. And so, verse 14, we, David launches a new plan. Even worse. He writes a letter to Joab and says, can you make sure that this man dies? If you've read from 1 Samuel, certainly chapter 15 to this point, you get here and think, David, no! No, how... How could you do this, David? How could you do such a thing? Who refused to kill your enemy, Saul? Now you're killing one of your loyal friends? How could you do this? David, what has happened to you? You are not the man you were. But even in this text, we can see the progress. You get, at the beginning of chapter 11, there's a broken routine. And then there's lustful thoughts. He sees Bathsheba and she play, he plays around. He contemplates adultery. This clearly plays in his head. He sends for her. He commits adultery. He lies to protect his reputation. He ignores the blunt rebuke that comes to him unwittingly from Uriah. He plots his murder. And at each stage, he just, he doesn't stop. He just keeps going. And therefore, what, he's, what his conscience allows him to do gets worse and worse. And that's the nature of sin. As James puts it in the New Testament, James 1, that's how temptation comes, and here's the effect. Uh, James 1.14, each one is tempted 
when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed, then after desire is conceived he gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. There's a progression. If you don't stop yourself, if you're not arrested at some point on that road, you're on a roadway that takes you way away from God and ends in spiritual death. So I think he's he's certainly the key thing to learn here. Without repentance, sin makes progress in your life. Okay? Without repentance, sin makes progress in your life. Just a little thought experiment for a moment. What should have happened? You know, Uriah gives his little speech and says, oh, it'd be a wicked thing to sleep with Bathsheba when the army's out at war. How, who could do such a despicable thing? Just what, what would you expect David to do at that point? Surely at that point David should have got on his knees and confessed his sin and said, Uriah, you're right, but I have to tell you what's taken place. Oh, that would have been awful. Oh, what a mess. David's reputation devastated but it would have prevented murder it would have prevented worse crimes so look if if you're sat here and you're a Christian this morning can I ask you bluntly is there something that you have done are doing you know it's wrong and you've not confessed it and repented of it can I ask you that bluntly? Can you ask, you search your hearts genuinely on that? Is there something you are doing, have done, you know is wrong? You've not confessed it. You've not repented. Do so. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to another individual, a friend that you can trust in confidence. Because anyone you've said it out loud, really, to someone else, do you know you've genuinely confessed your sin? And they can tell you what repentance looks like. Is there anything you need to sort out before this progression continues in your own heart? Look, I know some would say, it's a bit forceful, a bit legal. Look, David fell. David, he is greater than you and I, far more godly, far more in love with God, far more loyal, far more impressive what he achieved for God. He fell. You can. I can. Just confess. Without repentance, sin will make progress in your life. It's the progression. Third and final thing. The triumph of sin in David. The triumph of sin. So the story, the battle of this, the account moves. Uh, the focus is really upon Joab a little bit, what Joab's going to do. Throughout 2 Samuel, Joab is portrayed really as a, a talented thug. He's an excellent general, great general, but he's got no morals. So he's okay. He's quite happy to carry out David's commands here. There's no pushback. Uh, David writes this letter and Joab essentially says, okay, boss, and uh, gets on with it. So verse 16, he tweaks the plan a little bit to make it a bit more subtle. I mean, not that impressive, is it? it? I mean, David really isn't functioning very well. Here's the plan, Joab. You're fighting, and then everyone runs away and leaves Uriah there on his own. I mean, that would have been quite obvious. So Joab makes it a bit more subtle. Uh, puts uh, Uriah where the fighting is fiercest. The downside is, verse 17, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. So it's not just Uriah, others have to die to cover up this crime. This is getting out of hand now. But David's response, David's response is chilling. 
When finally he gets told, verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Keep going. David essentially says, oh well. People die in battle. Another one bites the dust. Keep going, Joab, not to worry. David, a good man has died and others have died with him to cover up your crime. What have you got to say about that? Keep going, Joab, no problem. Stuff happens, doesn't it? Crack on. And verse 26. Well, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought her to, brought to his house. She became his wife. She bore him a son. All is well. All is well. He's got away with it. Adultery, murder, and life carries on. A stressful, probably, a stressful month or so in David's life, but he's got away with it. Apart from that final sentence, of course. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Actually, it's a bit more subtle than that. Um, I don't know why they don't bring this out, but um, let me just point out to you. Verse 25, David says to Joab, literally, don't let this upset you, literally, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. Verse 27, God, uh, sorry, David had done what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Or to use the languages here, verse 25, David says to Joab, a man's died, but don't get upset, Joab, don't worry about it. Verse 27, the Lord says, I am upset with you, David. I am upset. We're meant to, it's meant to jolt us again a little bit here. Because you can't deceive the Lord. You can try. Your conscience become quite hard. You can convince yourself that you've done nothing wrong. You could be Bill Clinton. I didn't have sexual relations with that woman. I didn't. I didn't. Well, you've gone through some mental hoops to come out with that statement, but probably convinced himself that that was true. Oh, you can convince yourself, but you can't deceive the Lord. Really, chapter 12 will be God saying, David, did you really think I could have you carry on as my king when you've done that? You don't deceive me, David. So sin, it looks like it's triumphed. But there is chapter 12, which we'll get to next week. Look, three things as we close. Three things to try and summarize as we close. Uh, We've said them all already, but let me um, repeat them. One then. Don't assume you cannot fall. Anyone is capable of doing this. You might sit here this morning and think, you must be joking. There's no way I could murder or order the murder of someone. There's no way I could be unfaithful to my spouse. Don't say that. Anyone can fall. Much better to say, much wiser to say, look, I pray that I would never do this. I'm going to plan my marriage. I'm going to invest in my marriage so I could never walk away or drift away. But don't say never. I couldn't. Now look, your mistakes and my mistakes, they may never be as dramatic as David's, but that may simply be because we don't have the opportunities that he had. Look, I say this as a man, but if, if I was a man with limitless power of extraordinary wealth, and I could summon any woman to my bed, and they would come and feel it a privilege. Would I abuse that power? Possibly. 
if I was essentially unaccountable for my actions and could do what I wanted, if I had loyal servants who would cover over my misdemeanors for me, why, you know, who's to say how I would act? So don't, our crimes may not be as great, but they may just be because our opportunities aren't as great as one such as David. Don't assume you can't fall. Secondly, to say again, without repentance, sin will make progress in your life. That is, of course, why when you come to the New Testament and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, if something's causing you to sin, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, do what it takes. Stop it. Stop it, or it'll consume you and destroy you. Repent. Don't assume you can't fall. Without repentance, sin will make progress. Third and last, the Lord is angry, but it's not the end. Yes, the Lord is angry, but it's not the end here. Look more on this next time, but just glance ahead to chapter 12 and verse 13. David does repent. Chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. That is extraordinary. The Lord has taken away your sin. David's behavior here is abhorrent. And I would hope worse than anyone here is ever going to commit. Murder. Calculated murder. And yet God can say to him, your sin is taken away. Now, make no mistake, again, we'll see this next week in chapter 12. There are consequences in, in David's life. Oh, it messes him up for a little, for a while. It ruins his family for quite a while. There are consequences to his sin. But there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. So in truth, the triumph of sin, not really. Sin only appears as if it's triumphed in David's life. But God's grace goes even further still. Even though David is capable of such crimes and covering them up and moving on, even though it looks like his life is ruined by sin, God's grace can still triumph over that. It's not the end. The Queen got it very right. Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that sometimes we need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. And to do that at Christmas time, God sent into the world a unique person, not a philosopher, not a general, important as they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. We need that. We need that. You and I need that. Don't be overconfident of your own morality. Trust in the grace of Jesus Christ day by day. And trust in the grace of Jesus Christ to provide forgiveness for when we do fall. Trust in him, not your own self. Let's pray together. Father, there are many other stories in the Bible we'd rather read of than this one. This is a miserable story. But we know you've recorded it for us, for our good. And you speak words of warning from it today, telling us not to think we're beyond David's mistake. Father, would you help us to recognize the capacity that we have to do evil? Would we we therefore avail ourselves of the means of grace, cling to you, walk closely with you, repent when we need to do so, and throw ourselves upon your mercy, knowing that there is forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ? 
and there's ongoing grace day by day, would we despair of our own morality, think less impressively of ourselves, and wonder again at the one who lived a perfect life and has died so that we can be perfect before you. We do ask it in his great name. Amen.